Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Very easy to find in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So third in, from the middle, chapter 7, we're going to pick up at the 11th verse. You can put your finger there. We will eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to ask your blessing. Before we attempt to open your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd open our hearts and help us to understand, to hear from the voice of God, because we know that it's God-breathed. This is words from heaven inspired by the Holy Spirit to help us, to save us, to heal us, to set us on the narrow path that leads to life. And so we open ourselves to your living word. Please bless our attempt to understand and to put these truths into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm usually not a real fan of pranks and practical jokes. Uh, they can be very funny, but occasionally something goes wrong and someone goes too far and you get an unexpected reaction. But we were watching a new show. It's called NY Med. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a medical documentary series about life in the ER there in a New York City hospital. Now, in this episode, uh, the ER doctors decided to pull a prank on one of their homies, uh, a fellow physician of sorts, and um, he was getting ready to leave the department, and so they wanted to show him how much he'd be missed, something that he would never forget. And so the ER nurse secretly climbed into a body bag, and then some of the doctors came around to Dr. Ben and asked him to perform a a routine procedure to confirm the patient's death. And so Dr. Ben looks into the camera, and he says, This is one of the saddest parts of my job. And so he walks over, and the camera's following him, and he gets his stethoscope out, and he he starts to unzip the body bag, and the nurse springs up with a shout. And it was kind of hilarious (laughs) to see a dignified, educated PhD doctor kind of lose it like a junior high girl. But he did, and I I guess working in the ER, you need to blow off a little pressure, sometimes especially in the heart of New York City. Wow, well, this morning's text, the same kind of thing happens, only it's no prank. Inside this body bag is a dead body. Luke 7, starting at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin And those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. 
And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. We're going to pause there, and that's going to be our text to reflect upon this Resurrection Sunday. And you heard of dead man walking, right? This would be called dead man talking. Now, no prank, no practical joke. And I suspect the same kind of shocked reaction when the corpse suddenly sits up and starts to talk. No, this wasn't a prank. It was proof. Now, before we dive into the text itself, a little context would be most helpful. Now, for those who are familiar with the Bible, uh, Jesus made some real amazing claims. For example, he said he could satisfy our longings, that every hunger and thirst of the human heart that he could fulfill and make us content in the deepest areas of our hearts and lives. And he, he called himself the bread of heaven. And he called himself the living water. And he said, if you ever eat of my teaching, you receive me, you'll never hunger or thirst again. That's a pretty amazing claim. Uh, He also said he could guide us through our darkness. And he said, I am the light of the world. If anyone believes in me, he shall never stumble around in darkness, but have the light of life. That's pretty amazing. He also said he could forgive our sins. And give our souls rest. Uh, Before I was a Christian, I saw on a marquee of a church this scripture, Matthew 11, 28. And it said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And I was only 18 years old. I wasn't church. I didn't know anything about the gospel. But that claim, it just felt like this arrow that leapt. And hit me straight in the heart. And even though I was a young man, I, I, I longed for that inner rest. And it just sounded so sweet. I wanted that. But what an amazing claim to be able to uh, give soul rest to every human being. Well, perhaps the most provocative of all Jesus' claims was that he could give people eternal life. And here it is in John 8. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Well, this created quite a uh, little uh, uproar. At this, the Jews, the Jewish leaders exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. Everybody has to die. Abraham and all the prophets died. Who do you think you are? That's a quote from John chapter 8. And since they asked, Jesus wanted to tell them. So he comes out and he answers the question. In John 10, he says, I and the Father, God, are one. Now, they pick up stones to execute him. And when he makes this claim, because this claim is the mother of all the other little claims running around the New Testament. Because in order, to, uh, for, in order for those other little claims to be true, The big claim has to be true. The big ticket item is that only God could do those things. And so he came out and said it, uh, I am God. And so uh, they pick up stones for blasphemy. They're going to execute Jesus there in John 10. And I love Jesus' sarcasm. He says, for which of my good deeds are you about to kill me? 
Was it the time I helped the little old lady with scoliosis and I sat her up and healed her? How about the beggar who was blind and I helped him by giving him eyesight? Is that why you want to kill me? They said, we're not going to kill you for anything good you're doing. We want to execute you because, quote, you, a mere man, make yourself equal to God. So check. They, they got it. I mean, he said, me, me and the Father, me and God, we're one. In fact, he goes a lot further than that. But raising the widow's son is going to provide proof that Jesus can make good his promises. And, and see, that's the thing about the Lord. Uh, when, the, when They didn't execute him at that moment. Everything quieted down. And the Lord made this very common sense appeal. He said, don't believe a word of what I have to say unless I can do the things that God can do. But if I can do what God alone can do, then you'll need to take me and my claims serious. That's John chapter 10. So the context for this raising of this widow's son is proof that Jesus, who made the claim, anybody who trusts in me will live forever, is valid. Jesus can deliver on the promise to give us eternal life. And he says, as proof of that, I say to you, sit up. And that's exactly why he did those things. And, you know, the Bible is not shy about explaining to us that Jesus is God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that Jesus is God in a human body. Uh, In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says that Jesus is equal to God in every way. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Well, you know, if you just needed anything else, Jesus just cuts to the chase when Philip, on the night Jesus was betrayed, Philip asked the question because they're all upset. Uh, They're falling apart. Philip says, Lord, show us a glimpse of God. Show us God the Father. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. John chapter 14, verse 9. And so... When he says, I can give you eternal life, even if you die, you'll live. He raises three people from the dead. And of those three, the widow's son is exhibit A. Now let's take a closer look. We're in a town called Nain, and in the Hebrew, it means pleasant. And so if you want to translate it, it would be called Pleasantville. That's where they live. But in (laughs) in In Pleasantville, a most unpleasant event must take place. And the narrative here, short, sweet, and to the point, but let's gather our thoughts around three words. If you're taking notes, number one, grief. Number two, compassion. Number three, resurrection. So number one, the grief we all must bear. Number two, the compassion we all can know. And number three, the resurrection we all must experience. Grief. Is there anything more painful than the death of a child? Only a parent who would 
have lost a child would know that. And I don't think it matters uh, when it occurs, whether you're 45-year-old parents who lose a 20-year-old or a 75-year-old who loses a 50-year-old or a young mom who loses an infant or a toddler or young marrieds uh, with a baby that never comes to full term. Uh, we got married in, in a January and in March, we were expecting, and uh, I was ecstatic, and I went out telling everybody in the whole world. I was at Cottingtown Mall one day, and I pulled somebody over and just said, I'm going to be a dad. Can you believe this? And they're like, wonderful, <laughs> and kept walking, but a little faster than before. <laughs> I bought toys. And I bought clothes. And I got baby Gerber food. And the kind that I remember liking. Well, I don't know that I remember liking it. Well, I remember liking it when we were feeding it to our kids. You know, or well, whatever. I, I got the little yams, the sweet potatoes. All right? And so I had the, the, the Gerber things lined up. And I had the little clothes and everything. And then it wasn't meant to be. the grief we all must bear. It was so touching to see uh, Barb's grandmother visiting Barb's father in the convalescent home. Barb's dad was 70 years old, had a cardiac arrest here in Santa Rosa. They didn't revive him in time, so he survived with, with bad, uh, serious brain damage. So he was in the nursing home. His 93-year-old mother, he's the only child. The 93-year-old mother, Grandma B, loves the Lord, living on her own, taking the bus and visiting him every day. And when I went into the convalescent home, I would see her every single day by his bedside, stroking his forehead and running her fingers through his hair. 9370. It just doesn't matter. Uh, it's a profound sense of loss, and only a parent can really know. Southern theologian uh, Robert Dabney heard that his son had come down with some serious illness, and this anxious dad traveled all night to be with his son at his bedside, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone capture the grief as well as he did. Here's an excerpt from a letter that he wrote to his brother about the terrible experience. He says to his brother, we urgently sent right away for the doctor who didn't think his case was that serious, but our boy grew gradually worse until Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away with great suffering. A half hour before he died, he sank into a sleep which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we have had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I have aged many years this week in the school of anguish. It wasn't so much the pain of letting my darling boy go, but that I saw him suffer so much and then fall helplessly under the might of the cruel destroyer while I sat powerless to help. When the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasures 
and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness to hear the little boy's voice fading away and his eyes begging mom and dad to help him. It's always the part that gets me. We were unable to come to his rescue, and that is what tore our hearts to shreds. Well, now that I've made you all cry on Easter, <laughs> there, are some, uh, there is some good news coming. Now, we all recognize that death is called the enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, uh, for a good reason. And, and some deaths and the circumstances are rather more tragic than others. And here in this situation, we have this heartless intruder called death um, and a widow and her only son. What a sad, tragic situation. So she's out in front leading the way, as was the custom of the time. The deceased was carried on an open wicker type of stretcher. The Greek word soros means plank. And so really it was an open casket with not much side to it. And the body was wrapped in cloth with some spices and the face was left exposed. And uh, before twilight of the same day of the death, the body would be buried or interned in a cave. And that's where they were headed, outside of town, because uh, death and graves was an unclean thing to Jewish households. So they would, be, they would have cemeteries or caves uh, outside of the city, and that's where they're headed. Sadly, this woman has been down this road before, first with her husband, and now with her only son. And so can you imagine the grief? I mean, at least when the husband died, she had her son, the young man. I mean, did he kind of look like dad? So it was kind of like still having dad, you know, a little jawline or the eyes or the way he laughed or the way he said hello. You know, they had each other. The son could provide and protect uh, his mom. He could farm, and they could make it through together. They could, they could remember and tell stories and laugh and sing and worship the Lord together. They had hope. And now she's alone in grief, and it's compounded by the anxiety of, you know, she's in a real vulnerable place. They didn't have SSI and insurance and welfare programs back in those days, and so she's in a tight place. She's alone even in Pleasantville, the most unpleasant visitor must intrude into every human home where there's a human heart beating. None escape. Ben Franklin said the only thing certain in life is death and taxes, right? And we've got 15 more days left <laughs> of the taxes. <laughs> I can't speak to her. To the other, but so in into Pleasantville comes the Grim Reaper as he's not so affectionately named. And so in he comes, and you know, folks, that wasn't really how it always was. There was another town with a similar name, it's called Eden, and the word Eden in Hebrew means pleasure. And so if we called Nain Pleasant Hill or Pleasant Ten, uh, let's call this one. Pleasure Cove, the Garden of Eden. And you remember how the place of pleasure turned to a place of shame. Love always demands 
a choice, free will. And God provided that when he put us in a garden. And let me quote from Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden that you like, but you must not eat from the tree, one tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this is because human beings have volition or free will. It's part of what makes us human. You know, uh, love means that I have a choice. So that when I say I do on my wedding day, I'm saying I don't to all others. I have a choice. That's why it's love. And that's what God did. He put us in the garden, not to be, you know, a bunch of robots. We have choice. So he had to put that tree there, had to make it look good so that we could choose and say, you know what? It's kind of like this. When Jordan was little, uh, she had a little doll and it had a string in the back. And you pulled the string and it would say, I love you, mommy. <laughs> and she pulled it and you'd hear, I love you, mommy. And Jordan would say, Daddy, this doll loves me. Listen, pull the string. I love you, Mommy. And Jordan would light up and say, See, she loves me. And I would say, Of course she does. (laughs) There were no strings on the back of Adam and Eve because they had a choice. And God knew that they loved him and were devoted to him and loyal to him because they chose to be. Well, you know how the story goes, enter the devil, the serpent. Did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Did he really say that? Unbelievable. And Eve says, well, actually, we have free reign and we can eat from any tree we want except the one in the middle. That's forbidden. Yes, God said, do not eat it. Don't even go near it. Don't touch it. And the day you do, you'll die. So, yeah, Satan says, like, that's going to happen. You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you two to be as smart as he is. He's keeping something really good from you two. Come on, eat up. You know you want to, you know. The only thing he couldn't say yet was, everybody's doing it. (laughs) They weren't. (laughs) But as soon as they did, that was his next line. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, Eve sees how beautiful it is, and she figures wisdom's a good thing, right? So she takes a big bite, she saves some for hubby, and he eats too. Romans chapter 5 says, that's, my friend, how it all started. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, and everyone sinned. So death even spreads to a place called Pleasantville. Now, Pleasantville eventually always must become an unpleasant place in every state and every nation, no matter how tall the wall is or how impressive the gate is in the community or how big the income or how famous you are or beautiful or young or how much we work out how much we juice, how much we cleanse, how much we go gluten-free, or even if we use Botox. Because you know what? After three months, 
Use of Botox, death is all over your face again. <laughs> Trying to work it out again. All it needs is three months. And you know how I know that? I Googled it. <laughs> so now, honey, if you see how long does Botox work on my computer, it's for research. <laughs> three months and death says, yeah, oh. Botox. Oh, I'm so afraid. And climbs all over you again. He just never lets up. Nain is uh, Nain is, uh, is an unpleasant place. Uh, so, you know what? We all take our place in the story. You will either be the one grieving the loss, or you will be the one, the object of the grief being carried but just a matter of time we all receive the sad phone call or we are all the object of the phone call speaking of the phone call right before Thanksgiving as most of you know at one o'clock in the morning don't you hate those calls one o'clock in the morning my phone went off and I saw that my sister Jody was calling and I picked it up and all I could hear was sobbing and hysteria. I couldn't understand what she was saying. I kind of got the clue, but I couldn't recognize what she was saying. And I kept saying over her sobbing and her hysteria, calm down, take a breath. I can't understand you. I can't, I can't help you unless you just talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. And then it went silent. And she said, mom just died in my arms. I knew she was sick. I knew she was going to die. But nothing prepares you for those words. Nothing. The grief we all must bear. Well, let's get to the good news as quickly as possible. (laughs) The compassion we all can know. Now, very interesting. Nain is situated on a hill Uh, There's a narrow road leading out of Nain down to the cave. The flute players are playing their sad dirge funeral songs. There are mourners wailing, and uh, the crowd is heavy-hearted in tears and not with with much hope. And unbeknownst to the mourners coming down this narrow path, um, there's a head-on collision coming because somebody in a large crowd is coming up the same narrow road. Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd, your text says, is headed up the same narrow road. And so, so interesting, uh, the day before, Jesus just healed the centurion's son in just a dynamic, wonderful way. So the group that's ascending is filled with this faith and excitement and joy in life. And the group that's descending is filled with despair and grief and death. And one group is going to have to yield to the other because the road to Nain is narrow. And so there's a collision. And first to make contact, Jesus is at the head of his group of celebrants. And the grieving mom is at the head of her group of mourners. And life and death collide Face to face, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, 
When the Lord saw her, not the body, not the other mourners, not the young man, not the casket. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said to her, dry your tears. And so I want to talk to you about the heart of God being moved. This is the very first time Luke will call Jesus the Lord, using God's title for who Jesus is. And I think it's two things. It's because of this great compassion. That word for compassion, his heart going out, is only used of God. So this great compassion and also that he could raise the dead. So now we have a fitting situation for us to hear for the very first time, this is the Lord. And so we see God's uh, uh, compassion here. Notice what prompts the miracle, like I said. You know, it's her tear-drenched face, her eyes swollen shut, that terrible sound of, you know, that gut-wrenching, deep weeping that's just awful to hear somebody else. That's what God sees. And Jesus, being the Lord, he's privy to the thoughts of the heart. So Jesus is able to see the outward and the inward, and he looks at her, and this is what motivates him into action. And I want to say to you that everything God does is motivated with that kind of compassion for us. You know, from that old hymn, there's a beautiful line, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows shares a part. So he looks at this woman, he takes it all in, and that's when the Lord loses it in a very holy way, of course, and all heaven breaks loose. Now, there's at least a half dozen words to describe compassion. And like I said, well, for example, sympathy, empathy, uh, benevolence, mercy. This word, his heart went out to her, translated in your NIV, uh, splanknizomai. It means to tear the spleen to wrench the gut, to tear the heart. That's his word. He looks at her, and he's ripped up inside. This defines who God is, really. Uh, Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will pass by you, and I will pronounce my name to you. I'll I'll give you the definition of my name, who I am. And here's what he said in Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Moses says, show me your glory, whatever uh, Moses was thinking. Oh, glory, right? And the Lord says, you want to know glory? That I could love the human race and lay down my life to forgive their wickedness and their rebellion. That I could lay down on a cross and let them torture me because of love that I have for them to be able to say at the end of all that, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So really, this kind of scene just touches the Lord. He takes the whole sad scene in. He's ripped up inside. And he decides to give a sneak preview of why he's come down to heaven, from heaven rather, in the first place, to end this nasty nightmare once and for all. 
Listen to this. It's beautiful. Hebrews 2.14 just sums up the reason why the Lord appeared. Since we, the objects of his love, have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in our humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Again in chapter 2 and verse 9, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here, in summary, the reason God became a man was to die for us and to conquer death and to restore us to right relationship with him. So he's had it with funeral processions, and that's why he gets impassioned by this love burning in his heart for her, for you, for me, for the young man. And by the way, in the Hebrew, or the Greek rather, the young man is 25 to 35 years old. The word for him describes somebody from 20 to 30 years old. And so he walks up. He's done. He's got it. He takes this all in. He realizes this is the very thing that got me to come down here in the first place. Here it is, head on. And he knows what he has to do to defeat it. And so he goes and he hits it head on, touches the actual uh, casket. And he says, stop crying. And usually that's kind of rude to say to somebody who's crying. You know, we do it all the time because, you know, we get uncomfortable because we don't know what to do. So we tell them, just stop it. <laughs> you know, you know, and then they ask why. And you're like, uh, because <laughs> things are looking. Well, Jesus, we're supposed to weep with those who weep, by the way. Right. We can comfort them, but we weep. We feel that pain. We don't tell them to stop crying. Right. But Jesus can say stop crying because he's going to fix the cause of the tears. And so he says, stop crying because I'm getting ready to do something that will end tears and death and mourning and crying and pain forever. No need to grieve like the rest who have no hope. So he touches the casket. The bearers stop. You know, they're kind of freaked out. You're not supposed to touch uh, dead things and caskets in Jewish culture. Uh, So they're freaked out. Jesus has that wild look in his eyes. So they're like, whoa, all right. There's a strange hush and there's this energy in the air. And Jesus addresses the dead man. All right. So we've seen the grief that we all must bear. The compassion, we can all know it's time to arise. The resurrection, we must all experience. So here's a paraphrase. He says, he looks at the dead guy right in the face. And he says, it's me talking to you. I say, I say, it's time to rise and shine. You know, cock-a-doodle-doo, man. Come on, let's get going. (laughs) Yeah, that's not really in the text, just so you know. There's no... Yeah, anyway, uh, notice with me, there's no prayer. There's no appeal to God the Father. What does he say? I say. I say to you. Really? That's why Luke says the Lord was going to name. The Lord can look at a dead person and say, I say to you, young man, your mama needs you. Get back here, pronto. (laughs) And he sits up. That's the amazing thing. Now, he starts talking, your text says. Am I the only one in the room that wants to know what came out of his mouth? I want to know what he said. 
What did it say? It doesn't tell us, you know? Well, I've got a few guesses, as you thought I might. <laughs> well, I imagine, first of all, on the lighter side, the guys carrying him have no doubt dropped him, all right? Because, okay, that, and wouldn't you? I would have dropped him like a hot potato. You know, I know the guy's dead. I'm carrying him. We wrapped him. We embalmed him. He's dead, dead. He's not like mostly dead, like in Princess Bride. He's all the way dead, dead. And so he sits up. They feel, they feel that. He's sitting up, and then they hear something. And so I just think that the first words were like, man, you're dropping me. What's up? Why did you drop me? Why didn't you let me fall? Well, uh, or he could have said, Man, Noah was just getting to the good part of the story. Then I had to leave the table. More serious, here's what I think his first words were. Mom. Why are you crying, Mom? I'm hungry. Feed me. <laughs> What's for dinner? <laughs> Last night I opened the door, you know, there was mustard and mayonnaise and nothing, nothing to eat. <laughs> I think between mom, don't cry, and praising God that we have our answer. And then the most touching scene of all in the entire Bible to me, and I don't know if you could find a more moving passage, uh, Jesus, verse 15, Jesus gives him back to his mother. Now, what did that look like? This is how I picture it. Well, first of all, Jesus is a strong, big man. You know how we know that? Because after a full night with no sleep, having been beaten beyond recognition, having been flogged with a Roman scourge, with its bone chips and glass shards and metal fragments meant to tear into flesh, 39 times. After no water, no food, a crown of thorns, they put a 100-pound patibulum, which is a cross beam, upon his shoulders, and he carries it a good distance. He's big and strong. And so I see them kind of maneuvering. They're shocked. They're, he's falling. He's in the process of falling. Jesus is right there. He scoops him up. And he goes over to mom and he says, here's your boy. Like a hero he is. He is God who saves us from death. And he picks up that guy in his arms and he sets him down right in front of mama and says, mom, I told you not to cry. Here's your boy. That is so awesome. That's in store for anybody who believes. That is the heart of God. Here's your boy back. Here's your mom back. Here are your friends and your family. That is what God came to do. He's a hero. Of course, there's a price that that young man uh, had to pay, but he didn't pay it. You know, how do you get out of uh, jail, really? Because he's under the power of death because the wages of sin is death. So who paid? Oh, Jesus is going to pay. And, and really, she didn't have to pay either because he's going to pick up the tab. And something very interesting in the picture of how that's happening is our Lord Jesus Christ is conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
So he's born of a woman, but he has no earthly father. He is the God-man. Therefore, he has no sin. So he's pure. He's going through ministry touching unclean people according to Jewish law. When you touch a coffin, you become contaminated. You become unclean. And so according to like Numbers 19, anytime you came into something that could be traced back to the fall or to the devil or to sin, you would be considered unclean. Uh, you know, you remember when you were little, people, we would say, you have cooties, you know. Uh, picture uncleanness as spiritual cooties. Okay, you're contaminated. And a rigorous protocol was prescribed to get you back into fellowship with God. You couldn't worship God anymore. You couldn't be with the worship community. What was the lesson? The lesson was there's something really wrong with unholy people because God is holy and you're unholy and there's a problem You can fix it temporarily, but God has in mind to fix it permanently. So this was the idea. So God comes into mankind, and he starts touching lepers. That that made you unclean. He reached out in compassion, same verb, to rip the gut. The leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he touched him. And his uncleanness left him and went into Jesus because Jesus is called the sin bearer. I pictured it like this, and, and I hope you don't mind this kind of analogy. I like those lint rollers really a lot <laughs> because when you wear dark clothes, and I like dark shirts, you know, there's all that lint on it, and you just take the magic roller, and it's gone, you know. Jesus is a lint roller for sin and he rolls through but he picks up the sin off of your soul and it goes somewhere it just doesn't go into the air it goes on him and he's going to now take that to the cross and say God here I am with their sin on me they're all clean because he rolled on through You're clean. It's lifted off of you. It's on him. And then he says, God, the Father, judge me. And God sends a lightning bolt that you don't even recognize him as a human being when God the Father gets through with God the Son. It says his image was marred beyond human recognition. You wouldn't say, who is that on the cross? You would go, what is that? Because he didn't just die for the sins of this congregation. For the sins of the world. That's why you can't recognize him. God made him who knew no sin. He was sinless. To become sin on our behalf that we might be made right with God. That's the good news. Nobody nobody who doesn't have that experience can stand before God because you still have the lint. You still have the the sin. And so uh, this is just an amazing thing. The Lord Jesus' pure soul was exchanged and sacrificed for our dirty one, and he became sin. And so it's really important to see we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. Just an amazing thing. So the debt was payable in human currency. So here, here, you had a debt. You owed it to God. If somebody wanted to pay your debt, they'd have to use the currency 
that the debt was occurred in, right? Incurred in, right? So the debt was a human being, a human life. So the one who wanted to pay God had to pay in human currency. That's why he became a man. So his heart could stop and his his back could bleed. And the air in his nostrils could go away. He could die. He could pay the penalty. And the reason a good prophet or a good religious man uh, couldn't do it is because he's a sinner too. How can one bankrupt guy bail out another bankrupt guy? So he had to be the God-man. And he had to be a man. And he had to be God. The perfect combination. And he is the sin-bearer. And he said, I'm happy to do it. Hebrews 12 and verse 12 For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, he thought of the moment when he could take the man and carry him over and say, Mom, stop crying. Look who who I got here. He's hungry. Take him home. Feed him. For the joy of that, for the joy of knowing that Jesus said, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you could come and we'll be together forever for that day. Jesus endured the cross, hating, hating it, but with the joy knowing it was the only way. Now, as I bring my remarks to a close and wrap things up, I do want you to notice that Jesus does miracles in a variety of ways, but when he raises the dead, he always does it the same way. And I think there's something very insightful about that. In Lazarus' case, uh, I think on a lighter note, why did he have to address Lazarus? Well, he's in a graveyard. There are a lot of dead bodies. If he just said, come forth, it would be like a scene out of a zombie movie, right? So he had to say, Lazarus, Lazarus, step forward, please. And Lazarus alone. And so he speaks to the person, every single time he raises the dead, three times, he speaks to them. Why? Number one, to show us that individuals retain their personhood beyond the grave. After you die, you're you. You're still you. You will be you. You'll be perfected. You will be changed if you're a born-again believer. But you retain the essence of who you are. Notice he dies. He is himself. He speaks to him. He's in a place. He is in a place where he can hear his name being called. And he comes in obedience. He responds. I was talking to my boss when I was an English teacher at a secular college and I was, I don't know how it came up, but we were talking about heaven. I may have mentioned something to start the conversation. And he said, listen, Ross, let me explain it to you. He said, I'm a new age kind of guy. And I couldn't understand what he was saying about nirvana, you know. And so nirvana, I looked it up again so that I could explain what it is. It's a transcendent state in which there's neither suffering, desire, or the sense of self. It's melting into the oneness of the universe. So he was trying to explain it to me. And I said, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. So he said, picture it this way. We're all like little bubbles. And when you die, your bubble ascends into the great big bubble called the collective. And then you pop and burst and join the collective. And I said, Bob, are you trying to tell me that we're going to be Borg 
you know, in Star, in Star Trek, that's, they're aliens who are like we are the Borg. And I said, well, what happens to me? Well, it, it won't be you. It'll be us. And that's paradise, not to be able to enjoy it. And then, you know, I said, what about the murderer bubbles? Do they all just get to go up free? How about those who hurt children? Those who rob banks? Those who rape women? How about those bubbles? The Hitler bubbles? What happens to them? Oh, it just all gets all collected all as one. And I said, "Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Listen, quite a contrast to Jesus' idea of paradise, to the thief who has a change of heart, dying beside our Lord Jesus Christ, who has a change of heart, and that's the only thing God requires. He says to him, you and me, paradise today. That's what paradise is, is that you're there to enjoy it. And he says, you, my friend, are going to a place, and you will know who you are. You will have memory. You will enjoy it. It will be paradise, and you will be you, because you had a change of heart heart. So the main point why Jesus will speak to every person he raises from the dead is simply this, that one day he will speak to every person and raise every person ever created from the dead. Here are his words from John 5. Do not be amazed for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God. And come out. Those who have done what is good will rise and live. Those who, what, those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Uh, Daniel, the prophet, also said there are two resurrections. Many of those Daniel wrote whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Now, since... There are none who do good. The Bible says we've all sinned and we all have done evil. Therefore, the only good Jesus could be referring to is the good that uh, God gives us when we trust in Jesus and through forgiveness. Um, It's by grace that we're saved. It's nothing you can earn. It's free. And so this, the only goodness that counts is a goodness that comes through the new birth and the grace that God gives us as a gift. And so... Brief story, it leaves us with a lot to think about. One, grief. The grief we all must bear. There's no way out. There's no way around. The wages of sin is death. It's only a matter of time before you get the phone call or you are the phone call. All have sinned. So there's a grief that we all must bear. Number two, compassion. Because of God's great love for us, though there's no way out and though there's no way around, there is a way through. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, it means to trust your life onto. Whoever just believes in Christ will not perish but will have everlasting life. But did you notice, for God so loved the world. So the compassion we all can know is found through faith in Jesus Christ. And last, resurrection. The resurrection we all must experience. 
on the testimony of God's own son, one day the son of God, Jesus Christ, will speak to every single soul. We will all hear his glorious voice and we will all be resurrected. The resurrection we must experience comes down to a choice, not if we're going to be resurrected, but to what kind of situation we'll find waiting for us when we are resurrected. God offers two plans for that day. The sun pays or self pay. One, you have everlasting life. God is your father the place Jesus prepared, new bodies, friends and families in the Lord reunited, peace and love and joy and forgiveness. And by the way, it starts the moment you open your heart. When Christ comes into you by the Holy Spirit, he raises you up. It's the beginning of what will be accomplished when we face to face, but it starts. The resurrected new life starts the moment we open our hearts to Christ. We live in that newness of life and enjoy the love of God and we have power over our sins and God transforms us. And so that resurrection is a choice. But to deny Christ and to shut him out is to forfeit all of that goodness. And he says, you'll rise. And in a sense, my friend, what people say, all roads lead to God. Well, Christians love to hate that because it's not really true. But in a sense, you're right. Everyone will be resurrected to stand before the God who made them. The question is, is there a smile waiting for you or a frown? And when God frowns, it's serious business. He frowned at Jesus. Jesus cried out, God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translates, my God, my God, why have you shut me out? Jesus is calling for help. He gets a busy signal. Why? Because he's your stand-in. He's taken the rap for you. And then he says, all I'm asking for you is to open your heart, man. It's win-win. What do you got to lose? Let's say it's not even true. What do you got to lose? You're safe in case it is true, which it is. And... and (laughs) You live a higher moral life. You're in community. You're doing the right thing. You have a lot of love. You have a lot of joy. It's just win-win. It's the only smart thing to do because there's a threat hanging over you. He who has the Son, quoting the Bible, John 3.36, he who has the Son has life. He who rejects the Son shall not see life for the wrath of God remains on them. So the smart thing to do is to come to Christ. Soften your heart, open up, and let God love you and enjoy the resurrected life, not in the pie in the sky later, but we're enjoying it today. Waking up, you know, every Sunday is kind of resurrection Sunday for Christians. We get up, we know God loves us, I'm not going to hell, my sins are wiped away, I've got friendship, I've got that God shaped void filled i got the bread of heaven i got the water of life i've got the one who can give my soul rest just this wonderful wonderful feeling of joy and every cell in our sinful body resists 
Someone got to get in there and tell that little child to be quiet, sit down, and open up and receive Jesus because it's the right thing to do. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your wonderful word and the Holy Spirit that brings life behind it. Thank you for touching our hearts with your love. Thank you for making a way for us, giving us a hope, this wonderful love and grace to enjoy. We look forward to seeing you face to face. We ask for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen.